Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdein Ozband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shkalim, daf kaf, page 20. We are in the final stretch. Our seum is tomorrow. Tomorrow it is 5 p.m. in Israel, 10 a.m. on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Whatever time, you, time zone you're in, however, you can join us and just, you know, do the math. Um, we hope to see you. This in this this masachet. What am I saying? The masachet has been. I keep saying it's short and long because it's very few dapim. It's it feels like we just had the psachim siyum, and on the other hand, the dapim have been so long that it's made for very intense and I hope rich learning. Uh, come join us. We have a guest speaker spe- specifically talking about the arche- some of the archaeological aspects of this, the historical can aspects. I, can of I just this say masachet. who the guest speaker is? It's my brother. <laughs> so my brother is Mickey Osborne. He lives in Israel. He's an archaeologist. I'm a little biased, but he's excellent. So come here, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, and and of course, some of our co-learners will be speaking, and your Dana, you and I will be speaking. And it's a party. And for those who have never been to our seums, uh, they're not long, meaning we try to keep them in the half hour zone of of rendezvous. Okay, let's get to the daf. Our daf, as I've mentioned already, this parak um, deals with things that are found. And the first thing that we discuss, of course, is things that are found in the Beit HaMikdash, because that's really the crux of the Masachet. But, of course, from there, we go on to talk about other found property, as Yardena discussed for the end of yesterday's daf, which was beginning already this daf. So here, now I'm going to talk about the next case, Mishu and we're talking about found property. We have a bright Ditani, Hamatsil Miyad Ha'ari, Miyad Hagais, Mishunit Hayam, or Mishunat Hanahar. So we're talking about something who's, who finds an article, you know, some item. But what they do is they find it, you know, in the paws or the clutches of a lion. They find it from an army, but an enemy army. They find it from the sea. Right amongst the rocks in the sea, or from the rocks in a river. Um, or from a large public street. Or from a large public square. Then if you find it, this item, whatever the item is, you find it in any of these circumstances, finders keepers, you get to have it. Why is that? Because these situations are either so public or so dangerous that the assumption that you, the finder, can assume, can trust that the person who lost this item will have despaired of ever finding it again. And once they've given up on it, then it's then it really has no owner. So then when you find it, you you can claim it. If you want to give it back to them, if it's let's say got some identifying address and, and name, it doesn't mean you can't give it back, but you are under no obligation because again, presumably they've despaired of ever what, getting it out of the clutches of the lion it's reasonable to think that they would never get it, that they would never find it. Um, There's that language, literally, yeyush, yeyush is a very, very important concept in halacha, which we will talk about more extensively later, um, or, you know, in other masachtot. Yeyush literally means despair, but it's in the context of finders keepers, it's literally the context of uh, uh, the the idea that somebody has despaired of ever finding it again. So, for example, if you drop, I don't know, a dollar bill on the sidewalk, you know, the odds are that you will give up on that right away, right? Because the money is not marked. It's not identifiable. 
it's a large public street, a large public square. Uh, you know, anybody's going to find it. Anybody's going to take it. They're going to say it's theirs. You have no real claim to it. If, however, you you lost a, a picture of your family, you know, with signatures on it, and let's make it very identifiable, and it's in that same public square, right? Now, this is not what this case is talking about. I'm giving you this example, right? So then that's something that where you could presume that anybody who finds it, like, it's not, a, it's not, it's it's called it has a siman meaning it's an identifiable um, item to be able to connect it to the real owner as opposed to saying well everybody's got a dollar bill it's all the same thing. Um, also, just for the to make a more parallel case to the money, let's say what you lost was you know uh, four dollars and sixty seven cents. Right, that's a very precise number that might also count as a siman like something that's identifiable where you could say oh my goodness I lost my four dollars and sixty seven cents right here and then although money is not identifiable, and in this case, it's a small sum, probably everybody would still give up on it. But the moment something is more unusual, or, you know, let's say it was a million and four dollars and 67 cents, you know, then that's something that you really care about finding. And um, you're not going to give up on it. And you're going to try to identify it in any which way that you can. In this case, again, really, the issues are the location of the item at the time that you find it, the circumstances in which you find it, it, it is you are eligible it could be yours okay and then we have we have a few more cases here as this masachet is wont to provide mishum rov mahal chedrachim because of there's so much uh, um traffic there right so then even if what's missing let's say is a goat right a goat that actually you know originally belonged to to its original owner um because you're talking about such a public thoroughfare you can keep that goat so what are we talking about here? We have a case where people pass through the street. Most of the people passing there are Jews. And then if you've lost your goat or if you lost your roast goat, then the odds are that you that it's a Jew who has done so. But and that's why the 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 Rabbanim here are not concerned that what if it was a, a non-Jewish shrite, it wasn't kosher, right? That's not the issue, right? Rather, it's really just a matter of, you know, if it's such a public place, then the people will have, yeah, you should all give up on it, you'll be able to get it back, right? And then, of course, they say in the end, right, so let me let me just read this piece again so we can parse it through. Because there's so many people passing there, meaning so many Jews passing there, you're not worried about the shritat goy, you're not worried that it's a non-kosher piece of meat. And in the end, they found that same meat in the home of Rabbi Hudanasi, and of course, it's kosher, right? Okay, and next, we've got a case of a wheel of cheese. Igul de guvna. Igul de guvna, that's a wheel of cheese. It was found in the inn. A pundak is an inn, a small hotel, motel, I guess. So this wheel, wheel of cheese was found in the inn that belongs to Levi. Levi, of course, is Jewish. And so then the Chacham, they permitted it to be eaten because of two things. One is because it's found property, you know, and I'm meaning in terms of not having an owner. And the other is because of the majority of the people, you know, traversing there are going to be Jews. So there's no concern that it's a non-kosher cheese. Okay. What does it mean, Mishu Metziah? Right? Everything that we've said above. 
So that's exactly what the found property means, meaning anytime you have a circumstance where the owner, the original owner, is likely, meaning presumably you can take it as a given that they've given up on finding it, that also means that, by the way, if they happen not to have given up on finding it, you are still not, you are not going to be culpable for having taken possession of something because they happen to be, you know, sti- you know, sticking to it for longer. The principles of the halacha will still, you know, rule in your favor. And then lastly, here, mishum ruv drachim. What is this mishum kivinat goy? Meaning you're not concerned that it would be the cheese of an, the non-Jew. And then, of course, because it's found in the home of, oh, then this one, ivishtikach, Min again, it's found in a rabbi's house, it's kosher cheese, it's all fine. Meaning the person who found it, finders keepers. And then before we get to the next Mishnah, I know you're going to take it away from there, but I just want to say this one last story, which is a little bit uh, more discussionary. So Rav Mana says in the presence of Ribiosi, he says, I saw the Chachamim, the Rabbanan, Rabbanan, announcing that they had found lost property, meaning they would call out and say, did anybody lose this? We found a this and such, even though it was a large public square, let's say, for example, or a public thoroughfare, where they know that technically the person who's lost it is going to have given up and somebody who finds it can keep it. They still try to go and find the original owner or at least to publicize the fact that they have found it so that the original owner can come forward. Amarle. At in havit haviata mishkach la nisavta rebiona avuch lo amarkin. So Rebiosi says, if you find something in a public area, you know you would not take it either. Just because you can doesn't mean you will. Rebiona avuch lo amarkin. So then Rebiona, he says, Rebiona avuch, your father did not say this. He says to him. Lo Amarkin, he did not say this. El Amar, Halavaikad Nishkach, Lashkach Mina Pusa Ulagava, Afilu Kane, Ashkach, Blonasev. What did he say? If we would, if only we could find such an item, some item that we would need, right? And we found it in a place that we don't have to announce that we found it, you know, in some kind of public area. Then, so then when Rabiona finds a lost article, a lost item in a crowded place, he doesn't take it for himself. Right, he announces that he finds it so that he could locate the original owner, but all of that seems to be above and beyond what his father would have said that you need to be doing, right? In terms of the, uh, in terms of the minimum, right? Like, meaning, do you have to publicize the fact that you have found something? And maybe intuitively we want to say you always have to, but from a from a legal perspective, that is not the case. That once these parameters are in place, you find something, you are not under no obligation to publicize it. Um, and there's no, you know, the, the claim here, the position here of saying your father didn't say to do that, it suggests that the idea of um, sticking your neck out even further to go above and beyond, not only is it not required, there seems to be a position that says like, no, we want to find things um, that have no owner in a public place so that we can keep them, which I find a little bit entertaining. I think that really the parameters of finding lost property are, are very salient, meaning I don't know about the money in the Beit HaMikdash, but this kind of thing, and when people have despair, and when there's no owner anymore, and when you can claim it, these are very, very contemporary issues. Well, it's interesting in a way, you almost feel like this discussion should have happened first. Like, yes, the Mishnah gave us all these scenarios, if you found meat, if you found this, if you found that, but shouldn't this have been the first discussion? What do you do when you find the lost object? And how do you declare or try to find the actual owner? 
And instead it went more to the discussion of, you know, do we assume it was kosher meat, not kosher meat? So I think in a way the Gemara is sort of trying to wrap up in the end, you know, the element of like, are you obligated to find the rightful owner of any of these found objects? I think it's the temple, right? I mean, I think the Beit HaMikdash just wins. Yeah. Even the, when the, the lawn... Yes, the Beit HaMikdash wins. And I think that is for sure true. Um, I'm going to move on to the next Mishnah, which basically starts with the discussion about found animals, right? Let's say you just find an animal wandering and here it uses, I'm not going to read the whole thing inside, between Yerushalayim and Migdal um, Adar. And, you know, basically you have to assume that it was a, uh, uh, an animal that was supposed to be used for a korban. And I think that's exactly what you're saying, Anne. Like, in other words, we assume the temple wins. We're not going to assume that it was an individual's animal, even though we know there were animal sellers and things like that around, but we're going to assume that this has to be a hegdesh animal. And also, you know, whether or not it was close to Pesach, um, so there would be more animals of a certain type of animal there and things like that. Um, but um, but they note something interesting here. So originally, when somebody would come with a, with a found animal and they would have to basically bring it as a korban, right? They would take a collateral from the person who found the animal to make sure that they would bring the nesachim, right? All the uh, other pieces of the korban that you had to bring with it. So what did people do? They basically wouldn't bring the animal because who wants to be responsible for the nesachim? Like those, that's extra money that you have to pay, right? Here you are, you found an animal. Okay, the temple wants to claim it as a korban, that's fine. But then because you found it, you also are out more money. So people just basically wouldn't bring them. So then they made a takana that they had to come from the funds of the community. And then the Mishnah goes on to say the following. So Rabbi Shimon says there basically were seven things that the court instituted, right, in the Beit HaMikdash, and this is one of them. I always love these types of Mishnahs, like where we really see an evolution of halacha or an evolution of practice, right? That the Beit comes, it sees a situation that was not tenable, right? Something was going on that didn't really work, and so therefore they had to change how it was done. And now they're going to say what the other six are. Right, let's say a non-Jew sent an Ola, right? We know that sometimes non-Jews would send korbanot um, to, be, uh, to be given. And he sent his nesachim, meaning he sent, and what's important here is that they, um, you know, that he may be sent like actual wine, right? And we couldn't necessarily use uh, that wine. Krivin Michelo, they offer it from his funds. Okay, so the Nisachim funds that he sent are used to buy the actual Nisachim for his offering. Okay, that they can do. Vim Lav, Krivin Michel Tzibor. But if he didn't send those funds along, then they can basically offer it. They just take the funds of the, um, of the, uh, from the community. Um, and, um, you know, so that's another word said that they can make sure that it would get that, that Korban, that Ola could be given. Let's say a convert dies and he left live offerings. If his estate, right, has the, the necessary nesachim, they use it from there. But if not, right, let's say, and I guess the assumption is there are no Jewish heirs to go to, right? They, um, they just take it from the community, they take it from the communal funds. Utenai Beitin, who Al Kohen Gadol, right? So this is an interesting one. There was a condition of the Beitin 
that if you have a coin gadol who dies, shemit, shetehei minchato kriva mishal tzibor, that his mincha is offered from the community, right? So we know that the coin gadol had to bring a korban mincha every day. Half of it was brought in the morning and half of it was brought in the afternoon. And this is in Bayura, Perik Vav Pasuk Yud Gimel. And the next stop is going to talk about this pretty much um, at length. And so the question is, let's say he dies and there isn't another Kohen yet, right? So what do you, you know, we still need that Korban sort of always needs to be brought or sort of he's still the dead. He's still the Kohen Gadol because the new Kohen Gadol hasn't been appointed yet, right? So uh, so we bring it from the funds of the community. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Michel Yoshim. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, his, uh, in his heirs actually have to pay for it. Um, and in and it was offered whole, right? So what is this about? So this is a very interesting piece. Um, what we are going to see later on in the Gemara is that really they would bring the flour that was needed for this mincha was divided. Half of it was brought in the morning and half of it was brought in the afternoon. But here what they're saying is, is that the whole thing was brought whole in the morning, right? And nothing maybe would be brought in the afternoon. This is what the Gemara is going to try to tease out on the next staff a little bit. Or if it bring, means two of them were brought, a whole one in the morning and a whole in the afternoon. But that's going to be actually um, on tomorrow's staff. Then, right? the court also instituted that salt and wood that the Kohanim can actually um, benefit um, from them, right? So we know usually you can't benefit from Hegdesh things because that's the issue of Mi'ila. But salt, right, would be put on portions of the of, uh, of of korbanos, and the wood would burn those things, and they couldn't be used for any type of seasoning or cooking for a private meal. But the court basically said that salt and wood that was purchased with communal funds, the kohanim could use when they were preparing uh, parts of korbanot that they actually were going to eat. Right. They also said for the paraduman, there's no concept of meila with its ashes. The Gemara will explain what that is later on. And that when you had disqualified bird pairs, right, their replacements have to come from the funds of the community. Rabbi Yossi says, no, the person who supplied the pairs also has to reply the replacements. And again, that will just get discussed a little bit later on. Um, I just want to spend a little bit of time, and I know we there is some interesting discussion here about this, um, you know, about this korban, the minchas chavitin that the Kohen Gadol had to um, had to bring. Um, and I just want to, you know, uh, you know, just pay a little bit of attention to this. There's one brace here. So the other piece of this is, is that when you would bring this minchat chavitin, so it either would be, it was a korban that was brought either for a Kohen the first time that he did the aboda, right? So this was like sort of an initiation korban, right? Maybe asiritaifa shalo So he brings his tenth avifa korban, um, right? And he does the service with his own, right? It literally means with his own hand. In other words, he brings this mincha and he offers it himself. That's kind of like his first aboda that he'll do. Again, we're not talking about a Kohen Gadol. This is just the first act of avoda that any coin would do when they got to the point where they would do ab- ab- the avoda. Whether it's a coin gadol or an ordinary coin, that was doing the avoda, right? Before bringing their regular, you know, tenth of the efa. So in other words, this applies to the coin gadol every day, right? He had to do this, bring this uh, 
korban or the ordinary Kohen, the Kohen Hedjot, before as his inaugural sort of, that's what you would call it, of his avoda, avodatan kshera. Their avoda is still valid. So in other words, um, you know, what happens if they hadn't brought it yet, right? Is there, well, so in other words, until they bring the, until they bring this, right, their avoda is not considered to be uh, kosher. Um, and so there are actually, what I was reading is, is that there are actually some versions of this price that say meaning until they bring this, it's not considered to be a valid, um, a valid avoda. And then the Gemara is going to go on and get to some more specifics about how exactly it was baked and how was it cooked exactly. Um, and if he's bringing two of these or if he brings one of these, I'm not going to read all this. You, you can do that yourself. But it's interesting to see that this is sort of like the purpose of this seems to be that it's like a personal avoda. It's a personal offering of the coin hedgehog or the coin guzzle under different circumstances. But it's tied to making the rest of the avoda that they perform kosher as to whether or not they bring this. Um, and again, I think this gets into, we don't have time to unpack it now, but what is the role of the coin? Um, is the coin, you know, representing God? Does the coin represent people? But, you know, you see these multiple layers that even, whoever the coin represents, the coin guzzle or the coin hedge right before they actually do the avoda, you know, there's still a personal element of like things that they have to fulfill in order to make their avoda kosher. And here we see that it's this particular flower offering, which is really important to make sure that any subsequent avoda they do is going to be considered kosher. Wow. Okay. Um, and with that, we're going to close because we're in the interest of time and also because we have a seam coming up, everybody. Come join us tomorrow. Again, 5, uh, 5 p.m. Israel time, 10 a.m. Eastern Seaboard. Wherever else you are, figure out the time. Would love to see you. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hot Room website. Until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>